Welcome to Insights with Sights, the Symphony of Scripture, a weekly podcast exploring the themes and contours of the weekly scripture readings. For more information about the podcast or to download the companion notes, please visit slash podcast We now join our host, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Seitz. We continue our series with the opening chapters of Mark. As we saw last week, the theme word of this gospel, especially prominent in chapter 1, is immediately, directly, straight away, urgently. The Spirit immediately descends bodily upon Jesus coming out of the water of the Jordan River, immediately sends him like the mighty Elijah at Sinai, 40 days into the wilderness, to be road tested, to show Satan in no uncertain terms his authority now being disclosed on earth. Immediately, he calls others by the same spirit to walk and learn alongside him. And immediately he teaches in the synagogue. And in so doing, finds he has beckoned and now confronts head-on the kingdom of Satan in the form of a man swallowed of all identity by a demon. The demon addresses him as Holy One of God. Holiness is the domain of priests set apart for service. Aaron is the Holy One of the Lord in Psalm 106. Of the prophets, Elisha, with a double spirit of Elijah upon him, is declared by the Shunammite woman, a holy man of God. As Elisha is to Elijah, so Jesus is to John the Baptist, and now finally and decisively. The Spirit does not just come upon him, but settles and remains on him. Straight away, in the authority of that Spirit, The king of demons is put on notice that his time has come. The unnamed man in the synagogue, Mark describes as a man with an unclean spirit. The Greek is actually literally a man in an unclean spirit. This nameless man has lost his identity, so much so that when he speaks, It's clear the demon alone is speaking. Two questions are rapidly posed, and the third statement reveals that the answers are known. Yes, Jesus has something to do with them, and yes, their destruction is at hand. Some think that the naming of Jesus is an effort at control and counterattack, and if so, it doesn't work. The entire realm of Satan is here at stake and is revealed by the individual demon's use of us. Have you come to destroy us? What have you to do with us? And in the end, it's the individual demon who is addressed, rebuked, silenced, and driven out. This more dramatic exorcism is preceded by Jesus' synagogue teaching, 
and they're both of one piece with the kind of authority Jesus is manifesting. We don't hear of any invitation by officials and nothing on that line is intimated. Jesus simply enters and begins teaching. The character of his teaching is not one of explication of scriptural texts, but is an authority like unto them. Jesus is the source and authority behind the scripture, the same direct authority that makes law and prophet what they are. And just as there is no mediation separating Jesus and his kingdom from this direct encounter with the kingdom of Satan, so too his teaching is unmediated and fully incarnated. It comes out of himself with authority. Here we have the explanation for why the final response of the observers on that day collates these two displays of authority under a single rubric, a new teaching. And this includes an exorcism as part of its classroom manifestation. He commands and he is obeyed. The selection from the Old Testament, the raising up of a prophet like Moses, helps bring the gospel of Old and New Testaments into coordination. The 18th chapter of Deuteronomy begins with reference to the tribe of Levi. This is the tribe that's holy and set apart. It's different than the other tribes, and it has a vocation in reference to them all. The book of Deuteronomy is situated on the banks of the Jordan, a last speech of Moses to a new generation. And from this vantage point, life in the land, its challenges and the responses necessary for them are envisaged. Priesthood, prophecy, and kingship are the three key institutions set forth. Life in the land will be life in the middle of a different kind of kingdom, described as full of abominable and death-dealing practices, soothsaying, divination, augury, sorcery, offering in death daughters and sons, necromancy, wizardry, consulting mediums. All of this is anticipated and an alternative kingdom and an alternative form of revelation proposed. Just as Moses spoke from the mountain for God to the people, so God will raise up a prophet like Moses. The request from the people that Moses speak for them at the time born of fear is here taken as fully appropriate to God's plans then and now and into the future. God will put his own words in the mouth of the prophet. We see here the subsequent history of prophecy as it unfolds in the books to come, being anticipated, running from Joshua to Malachi. The notion of a generation to generation, direct lineage of prophets like Elijah passing his mantle to Elisha is not developed here in any specific way. The subsequent history is content to use a catch-all phrase, I warned them by all my servants, the prophets. And we know that a formal collection of prophetic writings will count three major and 12 minor prophets 
with books bearing their names. From the standpoint of the last words of Moses on the other side of the Jordan, all this lies in the future. At some point in time, this prophetic legacy does not so much end as it lives on in the writings the prophets' names bear. Their words live on and remain a live speech in that form. In that form, the reference to a prophet with authority promised by God to Moses speaks lively today, and for one final moment in time, the prophet like Moses takes the form of John the Baptist and even Jesus himself in his, in his Elisha-like healing and teaching ministry in Mark's Gospel. We can see the outlines of this theme in Mark's account. Jesus is a prophet, mighty in word and deed, much like Elijah and Elisha, the kingdom of the Spirit, now in bodily form. The epistle reading returns us to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. You may have noticed that this isn't exactly a non-stop continuous reading. The letter is too long for that. So selections are made, likely with an eye toward their appropriateness alongside the Old Testament and Gospel reading, and that may be the case today. First, a brief note about modern translations and their tendency to use quotation marks in this eighth chapter. In verse 1, Paul is referring to the claim being made by the Corinthians, or some of them anyway. They say, quote, all of us possess knowledge, end quote. And they mean that in a positive sense. That is, they know, so they maintain, that food sacrifice to idols oughtn't to be a problem because such gods, as are claimed to be gods, to be sacrificed to, don't in fact exist. No big deal. This is confirmed at verse 4, where again quotation marks appear. An idol has no existence is what these Corinthians know. There is no God but one. Again, this is something they know, and it's something we can know by reading Deuteronomy 6, for example. Paul's response is in part confirming, as a faithful Israelite, he knows that the Lord God is Lord alone. He also knows, however, that though Israel may confess this to be the truth, they live in a world where other deities are not just vying for attention, but succeeding. You shall have no other gods before me is an acknowledgement of this reality on the ground and of Israel's rejection of it. The Old Testament confesses God to be one because of the knowledge Israel has been privileged to receive directly from God. Yet the on-the-ground reality is omnipresent and threatening. Aaron makes gods when Moses is gone, as he has it for too long. Knowledge isn't the same thing as the reality on the ground. And this is, of course, Paul's point of departure. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies and builds up. 
Better than to know is to be known by God and to love him in return. To think that knowledge functions otherwise is the best indicator that the wrong kind of knowledge, a knowledge without charity, is in play. Having made these two key points, Paul speaks of the actual situation on the ground in Corinth. In antiquity, meat was sacrificed to idols, and it was eaten in that context, or taken home, or given to the priests, who could in turn sell it. So what of Corinthian Christians who knew the meat came to their table in this way, or weren't sure, or were eating in the context of others at non-Christian meals. Paul makes it clear that some of these new Christians once did indeed know well that meat had been sacrificed to idols. And because of that, their conscience is wounded and objects. No knowledge will lift them up and out of that. So Paul counsels that the liberty of those who claim knowledge can be a stumbling block. And so he counsels to major in love and forbearance following his example. The word for liberty in this case is the same word usually translated in the New Testament as authority, exousia, force. The freedom to do as one pleases due to power. Good example in the Gospels is the centurion. He's in authority. He tells those under him what he wishes, and they do it. The liberty of the Christian is grounded in true authority, and that's the authority, the same word, that Jesus is exercising in today's Gospel. There is no freedom or liberty for the Christian that isn't a participation in his authority, in his freedom, which is love in the form of saving authority. Finally, the choice of the psalm for today takes some reflection. It doesn't seem to marry up to the usual Old Testament gospel pairing, except in a most general way. It is an acrostic poem the beginning of each line, starting with a new letter of the alphabet. It's a skilled production, not easy to do. The theme of the psalm is wisdom, not knowledge, wisdom, which finds its alphabetic beginning and ending, its comprehensiveness, grounded in the fear of the Lord. This fear, this reverence, enables those in the synagogue to acknowledge the giver of life and truth in astonishment, standing before them. It leads to wisdom that builds up in obedient praise and daily living and not puffed up in knowledge or puffed down in coward conscience. In that sense, love's cousin is wisdom found in the fear of the Lord, which builds up 
and strengthens as the psalm rehearses it. In the language of Miles Coverdale, which for some reason has stayed in my head, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding hath all they that do thereafter. The praise of it endureth forever. We hope you enjoyed Insights with Sights, the symphony of Scripture. For archived episodes and notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. Thank you, and we hope you tune in again. This podcast is a ministry of Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto.